This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Provoki, and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tom Brown III is one of the most incredible people I have ever met. Not only is Tom an avid angler and hunter, but he is a longtime practitioner and teacher of wilderness survival, tracking, and observation. I met with Tom in Oregon to ask him about his philosophies and stalking tactics, but I quickly realized that I was going to need a lot more time with him. Be sure to tune in next week for part two as I meet with him again to really dive into discussion about starting fire, tanning hides, and so much more. Well, so I was born on November 3rd, 1978 in Long Branch, New Jersey. My father is the legendary Tom Brown Jr., author and wilderness survival instructor extraordinaire. After my father learned his skill set from his teacher, who is a a Lippin Apache gentleman named Stalking Wolf, he spent from the time he was about eight till he was 18 in the woods with this gentleman, all his spare time after school, all summer long, learning these skills. My father, uh, growing up, was kind of an outcast, didn't really fit in. He met Stalking Wolf. His best friend uh, was half Apache. So that's how he met Stalking Wolf. And he, as soon as he went out to his camp for the first time and saw the skills he was using, uh, you know, the primitive living skills, he was absolutely obsessed. And as I said, he spent all his spare time from 8 to 18 in the woods. After he graduated high school, he, of course, didn't want to go to college. So he spent 10 years kind of wandering around North America, practicing the skills he learned. Did that for about 10 years, came back to New Jersey, was kind of working woodcutting jobs. He was teaching some classes to Boy Scouts and doing some state police classes. And then he met my mother. And as I say, the rest is history. What would he be teaching the state police? 
so, and that's something I, you know, work that I continued to do with him while I was with him. So we would teach everybody from state police to Navy SEALs to Marine recons. We were typically teaching those guys about stalking and movement, stealth, urban survival techniques, counter tracking, a lot of the skill sets that those guys use. And, you know, recently, the, the military especially, it had a, a great history of teachers teaching those things. But as those people aged out, they were kind of left with a gap. So my father still, and he still to this day does teach uh, military from time to time, although not as much anymore. And you're born in 78. Mm-hmm. So what does that make you? Five years older than I am. So I'll be, I'll be 40 in November, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah, you don't look 40. Yeah. I have, uh, you know, for as, and you know, we'll get into certain parts of my life that weren't as shiny as they are now. And I'm, I'm amazed. I'm actually uh, as put together as I am for the <laughs> hell I've put myself through. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Where yeah. did you, I mean, where did you go after you were born? What okay. happened? So, um, so a couple interesting things happened right around the time I was born. You know, my mother met my father. She recognized he had this amazing skill set. He wasn't really doing much with it. As I said, he was teaching Boy Scouts and, you know, doing a few other random things. And my mother said, you know, you need to write this stuff down, these experiences you had, not only, uh, you know, with Stalking Wolf, but in your 10 years wandering around the country, living in the woods. So he begrudgingly decided to do that. He wasn't a very good writer. And my parents had a friend, a family friend who was an author. So they basically sat down together and wrote the book, The Tracker. Now, the tracker was published a couple months before I was born and wasn't really super popular. But then a little bit of magic happened. Reader's Digest oh. read the book and they published an abridged version in one of their issues. Now, at the time, Reader's Digest was, you know, went out to millions Huge. of homes. After Reader's Digest wrote this abridged version, they called the house one day to try to get a little bit of postscript, like, what well, you know, what's Tom up to now? And my father never really wanted to run a school. He wanted to spend time in the woods. His plan was actually shortly after I was born, we were going to go to the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana. And he was, we were going to walk as far as we could in and build a cabin and live away from all the madness. Mm-hmm. And so Reader's Digest just calls the house. My dad just happened to be out teaching a class to, uh, I'm not sure if it was state police, some group. And they said, oh, well, you know, we're just calling to get a little, you know, you know, what's Tom up to now? And they said, oh, you know, he, he's out teaching a class. So at the end of the abridged book, they wrote, and now Tom is teaching classes in Wanamassa, New Jersey. Oh, my. And within two weeks, uh, there was a knock at the door, and it was the, the postman. My mom was kind of shocked. You know, why is the postman knocking at the door? He's like, oh, I've got some mail for you. And she goes, oh, okay, here. And she, he goes, oh, no, you got to come out to the truck. And it was bags of mail that just said, because there was no address in the Reader's Digest. It said, Tom Brown Jr., Wanamassa, New Jersey. And it was thousands and thousands of letters of oh, people wanting God. to learn the skills. And his first official tracker school class was in the spring of 1978 or so. So he's 40th year of tracker school this year. And he's still, he's still going strong. He's still going through all the letters. <laughs> oh, <I bet. laughs> well, now they're emails and, right. and all sorts of other but stuff. Was there a school like that 
So at that time, at the time, not really. The only other one in this country that is even close to been around as long as Tracker School is Boss. So I think it's the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. They're close, but definitely Tracker School is is one of the first organizations dedicated to teaching just those skills. Now, there were people practicing primitive living skills, you know, flint napping, things like that. Um, I believe there was a, a large rendezvous every year out in Arizona somewhere that had been going on from the late 70s. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's, he's the person responsible for the popularity of survival skills and the bane that is, you know, the survival reality TV genre. <laughs> and, you know, even 10 years ago, there were 10 or 15 schools in this country. Now there's thousands. It's getting a little out of hand. We, we can talk about that, yeah. that, that later on. Well, I think my big question for you, or one of them anyway, is why do you not work for your dad? Because you're <laughs> working for a different school. Yep. Um, so that's a good question. So <clears throat> long story short, so, you know, I, I, I grew up and I, you know, I essentially grew up as a, a jokingly a wolf child, a feral child. You know, when I was seven and eight years old, my father was sending me out into the bush for three and four days with just a knife to practice and to live. And I loved it. I, I grew up on a farm. We split our time in New Jersey. Part of the year we would live on a farm in northern New Jersey. And then in the summer we would go down to the Pine Barrens, which, you know, people think of New Jersey as fully developed state. And it's the, the most densely populated state. But what they don't understand is all of that population is in the northeast corner. The whole south Jersey is a very rare ecosystem called the Pine Barrens. It's about Mm. an 80-square-mile patch of land, and there are only three Pine Barrens in the world, New Jersey, uh, Long Island, and North Carolina, I think. Is it like a pine forest? (laughs) So it's basically, it was recently underwater, a couple million years. The ocean receded. So in the Pine Barrens, the floor is white sand. (gasps) It's pitch pine trees blueberry, scrub oak, and cedar swamps. It's an incredibly unique ecosystem. Now, New Jersey's pretty awesome. You drive on the major highways, you're in eastern deciduous hardwood forest, and then you hit a line, and you're in the Pine Barrens. And it's, uh, it's a very intense environment. There's not, it's beautiful. Not a lot of biodiversity. It's flat. It's incredibly easy to get lost in. Uh, so another uh, way my father, how he got known as the tracker is, you know, as I said, he was working with state police. He also started getting sent out on tracking cases, everything from fugitives to missing kids. I mean, he's been shot a few times. He's been stabbed, uh, you know, chasing fugitives. So that was another thing that kind of helped to propel him forward and, and why he's known as the tracker, because, you know, he spent a long time in the earlier years uh, going out on tracking cases. And I can think of, you know, being a kid and going out tracking people with him or, you know, trying to find people with him. Um, so that's another, uh, you know, something else that kind of helped pr- pr- propel him to that. As far as uh, why I'm not working with him, so as I said, I grew up, had a great time. Uh, right before, I guess it was about 11 or 12, uh, my parents decided that their relationship wasn't going to work out. So they decided to get divorced. Uh, my mom and I, moved to central New Jersey to a town in Monmouth County called Rumson. And all of a sudden I went from being this feral wolf child who spent his time playing in the woods and fishing. And in the summers when we were close to the beach, I surfed a lot. I was in the skateboarding. 
uh, all of a sudden I kind of got thrust into this uh, suburban lifestyle. Ooh. And it really, the divorce didn't hurt me too bad. I mean, obviously kids go through that. It's, you know, it happens. But what really, looking back at it now, and as I kind of, I'll talk about the book I'm writing later, but looking back on the situation now, what really affected me the most was all of a sudden, you know, having this very intimate relationship with the natural world and spending a large amount of time in the woods, both, you know, by myself and with a few friends I had, all of a sudden kind of thrust into suburban lifestyle. I adapted poorly, let's say. So, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade was fine. You know, in high school, I got into trouble a lot. Um, I always did really well in school. You know, I was the typical ADHD kid. I was always being yelled at for not paying attention. Yet, you know, when it came time for tests, I would always ace them. Didn't do so much homework. And then, you know, after graduating high school, just like all my friends, I decided, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go give it the college try. So instead of going to real college, I went to community college. And, you know, one thing that always struck me about school, growing up around my father, who is this incredibly passionate, articulate teacher, and then all of a sudden going to public school and seeing these teachers who obviously didn't care what they were doing and would rather be doing something else. You know, and I think back to my 12 years of, of normal education, of Western education, I can think of one teacher I would listen to mm-hmm. because he actually was passionate about his job and passionate about the subjects he was teaching. So anyway, so I decided to try community college, uh, found more of the same there. It, you know, it was just soul sucking PowerPoint presentations, you know, and I, I used to joke to myself, I said, you know, you give me a half hour with these lecture notes and I could give a way better talk than, than this person's giving. So, and also at the time I was, you know, working a, a spate of random restaurant jobs. Well, I was going to ask you what you were doing and, for money. And, uh, you know, got into drugs in high school, you know, smoking pot, the normal stuff. When I got out of high school and went to college, and I was just, I was miserable, but I didn't admit it to myself. And then came the heroin. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I you know, i was working at a, a mailboxes, et cetera, which is now the UPS store. I was an assistant manager working a, a full-time job, and I was miserable. I was, you know, would drink every night till I went to sleep. And then, you know, I had an acquaintance who had started messing with heroin. And, you know, I I remember the moment vividly. I can relive it. I remember when he came to my house in the morning. I was still in bed. I remember uh, just asking him, hey, do you have any heroin? And And you were serious? Yeah, yeah. And I did some, and it got rid of all of that. It got rid of all the anxiety and all of the... Sadness, and then I, I spent the next couple of years killing myself. Essentially, is it? I mean, when I do not know anything about drugs, mm-hmm. but the first thing I picture are like needles and elastic bands and stuff. <laughs> is that is that how it's? Is uh, that what no. you did the first time? No, that, not the first. time. That would be so. I just can't imagine someone for the first time yeah. sticking a needle I, in. I, their I probably, if it was that, I probably wouldn't have done it. Didn't so, think so. Okay. you know, without going into too much info, there's tons of different types of heroin. It's not a different way to do it. So that was just sniffing it like oh, you would okay. cocaine. So I started with that. I did that for about a year. Uh, after about four months, it started to become obvious to my mother that something was wrong. She 
you know, did the old mom thing, went through my stuff, found, found it. Oh, and confronted me about it. Go, mom. Um, basically said, you need to clean up or get out. So I decided to go to rehab. And I went, <laughs> the funny thing is I went to rehab, and all the people I was in rehab with were like, oh, you were just snorting it? That's such a waste. You should have tried shooting it. So, of course, I do my little stint in rehab and immediately go out and then start injecting heroin. Oh, my God. What is your dad saying at this time? Uh, at this point, he, him, and we didn't have the best relationship. So, part of their whole divorce thing, um, he remarried very fairly quickly. We didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. I was an angsty teen, so we were talking, um, but not that much. And you know, one of the reasons my father is so amazing at what he does is because every single part of him is dedicated to that. So, you know, he was pissed off at me and, of course, you know, gave me several talkings, too. So anyway, I I do my stint in rehab, detox, whatever. I get out. I start using again. I use for about a year. And a friend of mine, who is also another uh, proprietor of an outdoor school uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, a guy I met at tracker school when I was in my early teens, my mom actually called him because she knew we were close and he was older and he basically made me the offer. He said, look, you are going to die. I love you. I don't want you to die. You have an amazing skill set, just like your dad. You, that's what you should do. It's much better than working in restaurants. So I'll make you an offer. You move down to my house in Maryland. I will get you cleaned up and we'll go from there. So a couple weeks later, I packed my car. I moved down to Maryland to my buddy's house. I rolled around on his floor for a week, throwing up on myself and shivering. And he took care of me. And uh, the rest is history, so to speak. I knew at that point that, uh, you know, and, and Bill was running class at the time. So I was helping him. And we were spending time in the woods. And I was like, oh, yes, this is what I missed. Okay, so it was um, like a therapy for you? Yeah, yeah. So, and wilderness has always been a, a huge therapeutic thing for me. And I, I, I truly believe it is for everybody. I, I do too. <laughs> I'm hoping actually that we can talk about yeah, that later. Yeah, and that's sort of what my book is going to be about. Oh, good. Um, so anyway, you know, we were hanging out in the woods again. I was feeling great. After living with him for about eight months, he decided to move to central Illinois to another friend of ours, large property, to start, a, start another school. So they left and... I decided, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be like dad. I'm going to pack a backpack and I'm just going to go somewhere. So, from then, uh for about 5 years I spent time hitchhiking, walking all around the country whereas my father did most of his stuff in the woods, you know, would kind of just go to wild places. I wanted to experience a much as much of our country as possible. Mm. So not only did I spend time practicing survival skills and you know national forests all over the place, but I also spent time in cities. I spent time learning from and teaching homeless people and just meeting people. You know, and I, I think at the time, you know, when you're in your your late teens, your early twenties, you pretty much just think every other human being on the earth is just you know, you see the things that's going on in the world and you're like, oh, people are so miserable and there's no good people out there. And one thing that trip did for me was really showed me how amazing and generous people are. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would just be sitting somewhere with my backpack and, you know, people would come up to me and say, hey, you want to come back to our place and stay for a couple days? I once, I was in 
the middle of Ohio at a, at a, at a gas station on 75, Interstate 75. And this older couple comes up to me and they say, Hey, uh, you know, you doing all right? You need anything? And I was like, no, you know, I'm just, I explained what I was doing. I was just traveling the country, you know, enjoying being young. And they said, Oh, well, you know, would you be interested in coming back to our house? And, you know, I, we're getting older. I've got a few things that need done. We'd be happy to pay you to do some work for us and you can stay with us. And I had so many great experiences like that with complete random strangers coming up to me and just, just being amazing. And it really, uh, reignited my, my faith (laughs) in the human race. Well, it's kind of slacking a little bit these days, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really amazing experience. So, Here's where it gets interesting. So it's already so interesting. So right, right around this time, towards the end of my travels, my grandfather passed on, and you know this is in like the early days of email. So I, you know this is before cell phones, really. So you know I would stop at libraries and check my email. I get an email from my dad that that pop died. So you know I immediately go back to New Jersey, of course, and do the whole funeral thing. And uh, at the service, you know, my dad says, you know, when are you gonna stop wandering around the country and come back and teach with me. So I said, uh, you know, someday I'm kind of enjoying this. So talk about the universe kicking you in the ass. So about a month after that, I'm standing on a street in Asheville, North Carolina. Actually, no, I wasn't standing. I was driving with a friend and we were looking for a place to park. And I see this woman and her dog on the side of the road at the back of a Subaru. And something in my chest just says, you need to talk to this woman. And it wasn't like a hitting on her or anything. It was just a very visceral need. At, and I told my friend, I said, I have to talk to that woman. And of course, he's like, oh, yeah, right. I'm like, no, no, it's not like that. And so we finally find a place to park, go back to where her car was, and she's gone. So I'm like, oh, well. So later that night, we're sitting in a park, hanging out. And I look across the street, and there's this outdoor cafe. And here's this, this woman sitting at a table and her dog's tied up. And I'm like, all right, how do I do this? Like, how do I go up and just say, I, I want to talk to you <laughs> without it being creepy, of yeah. course. So I kind of make my way over and, you know, I walk by and I stop and pet her dog. And we're talking about her dog and she invites me to sit down. Oh, she, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're sitting at this cafe and she's writing in her journal. And I'm like... If you don't mind me asking, you know, what are you writing about? And she goes, well, you know, I'm writing about how I just took a second job because I'm trying to save money to go to this guy, Tom Brown school. Have you ever heard of him before? You are kidding me. <laughs> My, I almost had a heart attack. And I was like, <laughs> Wow. Well, that's pretty funny you ask. So, you know, I, I shared with her who I was. There's and, no way she's going to believe you. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, pre- I, I had my idea okay. with me. So... Uh, you know, we hung out and talked the rest of the night and, you know, I got, I got her contact information. That was the first kind of, uh, kick in the ass that it was time to go back, but I still resisted it. So flash forward about five or six months later, I'm standing on an off ramp in Amherst, Massachusetts, trying to hitchhike up to Brattleboro, Vermont, to go to a friend's land to fish for brook trout and get ready for deer season. So what I would do is I would travel a lot in the summers and then I would go kind of settle somewhere for the winter. And normally between Amherst and Brattleboro, Amherst is a huge college town. There's five colleges in the town. Brattleboro is a super popular spot. I had hitchhiked that route 
dozens of times and gotten picked up. You're hitchhiking with like a bow, a gun. No, just my backpack. What are you planning on hunting with? Uh, I we had stuff it at my okay. at my friend's place. I had been there previously. So <clears throat> I'm standing on this off ramp, and you know I had done it a bunch of times before. Within minutes, you get a ride, and I'm standing out there for hours and hours, and nobody is picking me up. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And just when I'm about to give up, this little hatchback pulls over to the side of the road. And I'm like, yes, finally a ride. So he's like, hey, man, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm going to Brattleboro. He's like, I'm going to Brattleboro, too. This is great. Throw your stuff in the back seat of the car. And it's a little two-door hatchback. And I open the door, and I flip the seat thing, and the seat slides forward. And on the back seat, I see a bow drill kit, which is a fire make, primitive fire-making device. And I see a notebook that says Tracker School Standard Class <laughs> He had literally just come from taking his standard class at my dad's school. So I get up, <laughs> I get up to Vermont, I get to my buddy's house, I use his phone, I call my dad, I say, all right, I think I'm ready to come back now. And interestingly enough, so the woman, Nancy, who I had met, I said, I want to come back and work, but you got to do me a favor. I met this person who really wants to come to your school, but she's really short on money. So I called Nancy up. She drove up from Vermont, picked me up, drove me to New Jersey. She got a free standard class out of it, and the rest is history. So that was in April of 2002. Wow. Okay. So, so from April 2002 until the fall of 2009, I was the head instructor and director of Tracker School. As far as why I'm not there anymore... <laughs> um, <laughs> I almost didn't ask because I was like, there's probably a story behind there that's not that comfortable, but I have to ask. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Um, so the reason I'm not there anymore is, you know, my father's an amazing individual and, and an amazing teacher. And I am beyond thankful for what his work, his life's work has provided to me. You know, every single thing in my life, every single person that is close to me is met either directly or indirectly through Tracker School. The place I work now, Tracker's Earth, is now the largest outdoor school in the world. It's impressive. Um, I was actually on the yeah. on the website with, we, last night going yeah. through it with a fine tooth comb, mm -hmm. and I was thinking to myself, oh, I want to take that class. Oh, I want to take that too. <laughs> so, you, you know, we're definitely the largest, uh, Trekkers Earth is definitely the largest kids outdoor school, uh, primitive living, wilderness survival school out there. And we also teach quite a few adults. Now, Tony and David, who founded Trackers, met at their standard class. Um, they were both from this area. They were both, you know, camp counselors as kids, but wanted to immerse themselves in nature and went to my dad's school and they met there and they came back and founded Tracker's Earth. So, okay. so everything, um, I owe everything to him. But as anybody who has worked in the family business knows, it's not always roses. And, you know, we, we butted heads on a lot of things. But, you know, in 2009, I just, I, I decided that, you know, his model is he basically, at the time, we were running two weeks of classes on, two weeks of classes off. Class sizes were anywhere from 60 to 200 people. Whoa. It was pretty, you know, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a large scale operation, large classes. And I wanted to do something different. And, you know, and part of me also realized that, you know, while I was there, it's kind of hard to be in his shadow, especially as a son. 
And I felt at the time that in order to become my own man, have my own face, that I needed to go out on my own. So uh, in the fall of 2009, I left and started a, a school called the Primitive Arts Collective. And what I would do there is I was basically traveling around the country teaching to small groups. So whereas I went from classes of 60 to 100 to 200, now I was teaching uh, classes to groups of 10 or less uh, in their surroundings. That also taught me a lot about myself. So, you know, people ask me all the time, my coworkers ask me all the time, how come, you're, how come you don't run your own school? How come you don't have your own school? Easy. There's a few things I like to do in this world. I like to teach. I like to write. I like to take care of nature. I don't like emailing. I don't like spreadsheets. I don't like accounting. I don't like marketing. I am horrible at those things. And when I was doing them myself, it really hindered the fun part of it for me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it made it feel like work. You know, I'm one of those people that is, I bust my ass at work, but I don't consider it work. Yes, I have good days. I have bad days. You know, I'm leaving right from here to go teach a group of eight-year-olds on how to care for sheep and pigs and then crawl back under the tractor. And then I have to mill some new countertops for our outdoor kitchen and I'll be there late. But I, but I absolutely love it. And when I was having to do all of that other stuff, not only was it ruining it for me, I was doing it really poorly. And uh, I just decided that... I would much rather go someplace and have somebody else do all that other stuff so I can focus on what I'm good at. So I, I did the Primitive Arts Collective thing for uh, from about 2009 to 2012, 2013. Uh, at that point, I got approached, uh, my partner Lisa and I got approached um, by some folks that had a 100-acre farm. In, and you had a child at this point. Yeah, so my, my child, uh, she lives in Ohio with her mother. Um, when we, I was married at the time when I left tracker school, and when I started Primitive Arts Collective, uh, we were living in the Midwest in Ohio. And then, you know, things fell apart, unfortunately. Um, but you, it's just, I, and I mentioned that because I just want people to realize You've really done a complete about face. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been a husband, a father, a business owner. Mm-hmm. You never obviously went back on drugs again. I'm sitting <laughs> next to you. You're very clean, yeah. you know. Like, um, so you just did a complete about face. So yeah. congratulations, because that oh, in itself you. is such an. It's just really inspiring to hear people's stories, whether it's alcoholism, drugs, mm-hmm. whatever their vice may be. It's 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 really incredible that you're able to get over that. And you know the. And something I've I've found out and, you know, doing self-searching, you know, the reason why I got into those behaviors um, at the time, because something was missing from my life, you know, and it's a very common problem nowadays. You know, we've never, as humans, we're meant to live in small groups, you know, and now we live around hundreds, thousands, millions of people, and people have never been so alone. There, There's so much lack of of real connection with anything anymore, and especially not with the natural world. And when people have that that emptiness, they need to fill it with something. My father's teacher, Stalking Wolf, said something really interesting. He said, people in life strive for four things, peace, love, joy, and purpose. And the problem is our society teaches us that those things can only be found outside of ourselves. Money doesn't make you happy. Uh, a, A certain person isn't going to make you happy. 
you need to make yourself happy. And when you yourself are happy, that's when the magic really happens. That's, that, that's when all of these pathways open up. And until you realize that and start, stop kind of pursuing the, the false gods of the flesh. Oh, so anyway, <laughs> let me digress just a little bit. So after, um, you know, doing the, the primitive arts collective things for a few years, my partner, current partner, Lisa and I, uh, were approached by a mutual friend who had a friend who had a hundred acre farm in Marshall, Virginia, which is about an hour west of DC, uh, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge mountains. And he said, Hey, these people have this farm. They don't use it and they want to donate it to somebody to, you know, build an outdoor education center. Would you guys be interested in, in pursuing that? Lisa had a friend from college and his wife who had been doing outdoor education for years. So we contacted them and they were kind of in between jobs at the time. So the four of us kind of on a whim decided to move from different parts of the country. Uh, Lisa and I were living in Stewart, Florida at the time. I, I, I spent a, in between the time I did the Earth Village education thing and the Primitive Arts Collective thing, I selfishly took a year and a half off to just live in Florida and fish. And so, you know, we all moved from different parts of the country to this farm in Virginia that was completely overgrown and just not very well taken care of. And over the course of six months, we transformed it into this outdoor education center. And then we... Um, uh, you know, had some minor disagreements with the landowner and things like that. And there was just uh, a, a lot of issues came up that, that made it not viable. Now, at that point, I was like, all right, well, what are my options? I can go back on the road to teach. So my friend Tony, who who started Trackers Earth, who is really an amazing individual, not only does he have the outdoor skills, but he has the the business side. So he has always been... Uh, I first met him in 2010. He was actually, he contracted me to come out here and teach. Uh, it was some of the first primitive arts collective classes were teaching in Portland, Oregon to uh, his established groups of students. So he had always been a, a mentor of mine ever since I met him because he knew all these things I didn't know. And I'm a big fan of of just sucking the brain out of anybody who knows things that I don't know. And you know, towards the end of our uh, our stint in Virginia, I had been talking to him a lot to try to, you know, find resolution for some of these issues, business issues we were having. And when I told him, I said, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to work out here. He's like, why don't you do yourself a favor? Why don't you come out here and work for me? <laughs> hmm. I can't imagine myself living on the West Coast. So two years ago in November, Lisa and I came out here for a visit for a week completely fell in love with the area, you know, fell in love with the organization, realized that I could live right near Salmon and Steelhead. So Trackers, Trackers Earth headquarters is in Portland. The way our organization works is all of our kids and adults, we meet at our headquarters building. It's some ridiculously large, I think it's like fourteen or 18,000 square foot. We have an indoor blacksmith studio, indoor archery range, uh, indoor, you know, wood shops, uh, ceramics. So it's basically your, your, your one-stop urban headquarters for everything, you know, earth skills. Uh, and then we have buses that we bus people out. So I live in a town called Rhododendron, which is about an hour outside of Portland. Uh, Lisa and I live in a 1200 square foot cabin 
that um, our backyard is Mount Hood National Forest. So I have a 92,000 acre backyard. (laughs) It's like my dream come true. Do you think certain people are born with a gene that makes them want to get out and say hunt or fish or be outside? Or do you think that we're all born with it? (laughs) That's a good question. If you look back through human history, you know, you don't have to go too far back to reach hunter-gatherer peoples, you know, and and on a side note, not so much here, but when I was with my dad, a huge misconception about what we did is that we taught, you know, Native American skills. And while, yes, that's true, you know, Native Americans used primitive living skills, uh, the fact is, if you trace any human on this planet's ancestry back far enough, you will arrive at somebody who was... Uh, you know, making bows out of sticks and tanning animal hides and making arrowheads by flint napping. So these skills are universal and belong to all of us. I, I think the reason why people associate these skills with Native Americans is because they're our closest historical reference to people actually living these skills and using these skills to, to stay alive. Um, so anyway, back to your question is if you think people are genetically predisposed to be outdoors people or hunters or or fishermen. I haven't seen any evidence to support that myself. I think it's more, you know, I've seen people go from being complete city folk to getting completely wrapped up in hunting and fishing. But I think in order to, you know, especially pursue the skills of of hunting and fishing, I think it definitely helps going down that road if you have a a deep appreciation and love for the natural world. Now, nowadays, you know, we are a lot of people I've noticed, especially in the last 10 years, are getting into hunting and fishing, specifically as a means for feeding themselves. Yeah, why do you think that is over the last 10 Uh, years? Because I think, you know, we, we live in this amazing internet age now where all of this information at one point, which was hidden from us, you know, things like factory farms or spraying disgusting chemicals all over crops... We can see that that stuff nowadays, and uh, anybody with you know more than two marbles rolling around in their head, you know, when you drive by a farm and you see somebody in a hazmat suit applying something to the vegetables that will be in the store next week, that's not a good thing. And I think people we can see that now, so people are making the choice to feed themselves better food, either by hunting, fishing. Uh, you know, gardens in their backyards, even things like going to farmers markets. So I think now hunting and fishing especially are becoming more popular specifically for the kind of foraging aspect of it, of, you know, gathering your own food. And, you know, as I'm, I know you're aware, there's something absolutely magical about the time and effort putting into hunting or fishing. And then not only for the experience of it, but then, you know, feeding ourselves afterwards. And I think, you know, as we move into the future as a species, we are going to stop putting up with a lot of the things that we've put up with as far as destruction to our environment, poisoning of our food systems, uh, the general just unhappiness of people. Uh, I think genetics plays a very small part in it because genetically we are all still hunter-gatherer peoples. You know, that... That time is only 20,000 years ago, max. We lived making arrowheads. We lived making bows for way more time than we've had computers and phones and vehicles. So that's, uh, you know, genetically, that's where we still are. And we're trying to catch up with this, with this crazy modern world 
And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not working so well in, in certain instances, but you can't be a successful hunter or fisher, fisherman without uh, being aware of your surroundings. And that's one thing I love about what I do and the skills I teach is they are a complete rabbit hole. So if you get really excited about one thing, eventually it will lead you to all of the other skills. Now you fly fish. Mm-hmm. Do you ever battle with yourself about, mm, this isn't really how they did it back then? Yes and no. So uh, another kind of, we, uh, we talked about earlier about how you know stone, stone arrowheads are illegal to hunt in a lot of places. And unfortunately as well, a lot of the primitive fishing skills, which are completely effective, and I'm not just talking about spearing fish, I'm talking about you know, hooks, bone hooks, all very effective, but not allowed to be used uh, in most cases. Do I battle? No, I don't, because I appreciate a lot of modern things we have. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you, you got your MacBook, I've got my Apple Watch, I've got my iPhone over there. Um, I appreciate those tools, right? Humans are tool users. It what separates us from, and I hate to use the word separate, but it, what, it, what makes us different from a lot of other beings out there. And we are meant to make tools an extension of our body. So I am a big fan of any tool that helps me learn, that helps me grow in any way. You know, you talk about phones and, and the internet. Amazing. There's been no point in our history where we, in our pockets, have access to pretty much all of human experience. But what do people do with it? They spend time leaving snarky comments on Facebook or uh, reading poorly worded news articles and getting in arguments with anonymous strangers, right? Improper use of a tool. Yeah, I spend a lot of my time and my students <laughs> teach them how to properly use tools. So you would consider fly fishing tools of today proper? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, the thing I've, I've always been into fishing. Um, so the farm I grew up on in Northern New Jersey, uh, we were on the Musconet Kong river, which is one of the finest of New Jersey's trout streams. And by finest, I mean, you know, well-stocked. Um, so I grew up fishing there, also fishing on the beach. And I remember being down at the river with my spinning rod. And I remember the first time I saw somebody fly fishing and I was like, wow, what is that? So, you know, I kind of like stalked up the bank and watched this guy and looked at my spinning rod and looked at that. And I was like, wow, that, that seems much more artful that, you know, that really intrigues me. I want to get into that. So I went, you know, I hiked back up to the farmhouse and I said, dad, I want a fly rod. I want to get into fly fishing. So he said, okay. And, you know, he was always mega supportive of any outdoor activities. So we went up to, to Dan's sports shop and he bought me a Cortland, you know, four or five weight combo no idea how to cast. You know, it came with a few flies. I think there were some hares ear nymphs and some woolly buggers in there. So <laughs> I went down to the river and, you know, I just expected like, oh, you know, I can I can cast a meps, you know, across the river and hit any spot I want. This has got to be just as easy. And man, I was <laughs> miserable. I mean, I was probably seven or eight years old at the time. And uh, I was just miserable with it. So then, about a year later, uh, a new class came in, and my dad said, hey, there's this, this guy here who I, who I talked to you about, told him you really like to fly fishing, and he's, he's really into fly fishing. He's willing to show you a thing. And it was Flip Pallet. Oh, no, what? <laughs> so 
I, you know, I met, I was probably, I was eight or nine years old. Was he so there working with your dad? He was taking a class. No kidding. So yeah, he ended up taking, taking several classes with my dad. Um, so he, for the better part of this week in his off time, taught me how to fly cast. Cool. And, you know, it was, it was funny seeing, comparing my skills to the, to the guy I originally saw in the river and then watching him cast. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And then, you know, I'll never forget, at the end of the week, he gave me, uh, as I said, my dad had mentioned to him that I was into fly fishing. And at the end of the class, Flip gave me a sage, nine-foot, five-weight, four-piece rod, uh, which I still have, <laughs> which, I, which I don't use anymore because it's just too, too precious to me. Yeah. But that is how I got hooked on, really hooked on fly fishing. Mm-hmm. But I've always... Uh, Back to humans and tool users, you know, as I said, as, as human beings, our, our usage of tools, they're, they're meant to be used as extensions of our body to allow us to do things that we can't normally do. And one of the things I've always absolutely loved about fly fishing is that it's an art form. I can, I can hand anybody a spinning rod and within 20 minutes I can have them casting just about as decently as I can with a spinning rod. Uh, it doesn't really... Not that it doesn't take any skill, but fly fishing is definitely requires discipline and dedication. And the other thing I love about it, and this ties into, uh, you know, awareness, which is the most important skill in life, but also the stalking and movement and being a good naturalist. You know, you can't go to a river with a fly rod and just blindly catch fish. You need to be a good naturalist. You need to learn how to read rivers. You need to learn about aquatic insects. You need to learn about river flows. You need to learn about seasons. And then you have the whole actually using of the tool. And when and only when those things come together in some sort of a decent marriage will you be effective at fishing. Um, you know, a personal goal of mine is to learn as much about anything as I possibly can, whether that's fly fishing or welding or flint napping or wild edible plants or anything you know i i spend my time when i'm not working or teaching trying to learn something new um so there's always every moment of every day you have the opportunity to not only learn something but you have the opportunity to teach something as well Mm -hmm. and that's what i'm i'm super big on yeah i've never understood the word bored read something. There's no excuse to ever be bored. Now, speaking of learning something, I would like to learn some things. May I pick your brain? Go. Okay. Back in the day, how did they fish for steelhead and salmon? So that's a good question. So it depends on where you were. And I'm not mega well-versed in the peoples of the Pacific Northwest, although their fishing technology was light years ahead of everybody else. The salmonids, uh, you know, were typically probably either fished with dip netting or fish weirs where they would, I mean, you see them even if you go a little north on the Columbia, you can see some dip net spots where you essentially have a really long pole. We have it on the boat. Yeah, with, with a big net and you're, you know, scooping in the turbid waters. Like I, I have a friend who is an Alaska resident and that's, he's a, you know, fly fisher person, but when he really wants to gather gather meat for the smoker, he goes out with a dip net and you just stick it in. Um, you know, one thing you have to understand about our ancestors and Native Americans is that they were masters of conservation of energy. So we, in our modern society, we have an overabundance of energy available to us. At any time, 24 hours a day, 
unless you are in the middle of nowhere, you can have access to any food you want. If you think back to our ancestors, they weren't always so lucky. You know, they were they were living off the land and they wasted no energy, just like animals nowadays. You know, if we watch an animal move through the woods, an animal is an instrument played by the landscape and the landscape dictates that animal's movement and they move across the landscape based on conserving energy. You know, the path of least resistance. And our ancestors were the same way. Any way they could effectively and efficiently gather food, they would. So that's why, you know, you see things like dip netting or even, you know, gill netting was was originally, you know, comes from a, a primitive practice to uh, fish beers. And if you think back to those times, right, I've read lots of, one, one thing I love to do in my spare time, you talk about reading uh, I love going online and reading the journals of old explorers. Oh, yeah, and for sure. They talk about so many salmon in the rivers that you could walk across them on their backs. You know, and it, and it makes me sad that, that I, don't, <laughs> I don't get to see that. You know, I've seen, I think the closest I ever saw to that was a, a pretty giant pink salmon run on the Snoqualmie River in Washington State. When you've got that many fish in a river, you could just do like the bears do. <laughs> Go in and grab them out and hook them up onto the bank. Um, so yeah, so their, so their fishing techniques were different. I don't really think, and once again, I could be completely wrong about this. I don't think the, the, the peoples that had access to salmonids typically did much like line and hook fishing for them. I think they were going for like the bulk rate, but now you get into things like halibut and lingcod, the, the peoples of the Pacific Northwest. One, one book I encourage you to get, if you don't already have it, it's a book called Indian Fishing by Hillary Stewart. And it's all recreations of all of this amazing fishing gear uh, that the peoples of the Pacific Northwest, British Columbia, especially uh, used. And if you look at some of these halibut hooks and the way they were designed, you know, they had a bull kelp line with a human, with a three strand corded human hair leader. Whoa. And the hooks are designed in a way so that when the halibut bites them, the hook actually keeps the fish's mouth closed so it can't oxygenate its gills. Because I don't know if you've ever fished for halibut before. Um, I haven't. It's something I do plan on doing, but pulling a three, 400 pound halibut off the bottom with, it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> with a, with a hair leader and a, and a, and a, and a processed bullwhip kelp line, uh, is amazing. And when you're doing that, you need any advantage. So they were ingenious enough to come up with hook designs that actually closed the fish's mouth so they couldn't oxygenate the gills. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I've, I've always been really fascinated with the peoples of the Pacific Northwest 
because if you look at their shelters, their clothing and gear, their art was just magnificent compared to other groups. And the reason why is because they had such an abundant access to energy with salmon and caribou and seal, you know. So whereas other groups kind of lived a a pretty hard scrabble existence, you know, here were peoples that built these magnificent longhouses and steam bent cedarwood cooking boxes and jewelry and masks and so many just amazing skills. And the reason they had the time to figure all that stuff out was because at certain times of the year, they were able to gather a shit ton of food for themselves that gave them the spare time to, to work on those things. That's so true, isn't it? Yeah. You earlier just gave me the most beautiful gift. It's a handmade, what did you it's call a, it? It's an agate, um, say, atlatl point. Big big arrowhead, small atlatl point. That you hand carved out mm-hmm. of an agate. It's absolutely napped. gorgeous. <laughs> and the, which? It's napped. Napped. Yeah, flint napped. So flint comes from Europe. Chert is in the Americas. So it's generally called uh, flint napping is, oh. the, is the kind of, you know, the, 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 the widely used term for it. So it's essentially... Uh, you know, breaking rocks, certain types of rocks that have a high silica content in a very controlled manner and making very sharp, very effective cutting tools out of them. And you mentioned very briefly, I felt a bit of tension on the compound bow. (laughs) So talk to me, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Well, (laughs) so I've got a, a, and I'm going to try to do this without, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't like to knock anybody's game. You know, as I said, my goal is to get people outdoors. If you're going outdoors and you're not like burning tires and dumping trash and, and poaching, I don't care what you're doing out there. I jokingly joke with friends who hunt with compound bows. So I have always been a longbow hunter and also a self bow hunter, making my own bows, my own arrows. The thing I love about not only primitive or or traditional, you know, we'll call it traditional archery versus modern archery, is you have to be that much closer to your animal. So I've been hunting my whole life since I was old enough to hold anything. And, uh, you know, I don't hunt in trees. A couple reasons. I don't really like heights too much. And I can't sit still for that long. I don't like, know how I have, people do it. I have friends back east that during the rut, they go out at four in the morning and will sit in the tree stand till six at night. Mm-hmm. And I can't sit in one spot for more than an hour. You know, it's, it's funny. I talked about how I was ADD earlier. You know, there's some scientists that have theorized that ADD is actually part of our hunter-gatherer-ness. I was going to ask you that. You know, to keep us... Oh, sorry, and I didn't mean to get you off. Oh, Finish no. your sentence. To keep oh. us... Like, to keep us moving, yeah, right? To, Surviving. Yeah, to, to keep us moving, keep us survival, but to keep us aware, to keep us looking around. Totally. You know, I mentioned my teachers in high school. You never pay attention. No. I pay more attention than you think I do because I'm, <laughs> I'm varying my vision and looking around, and I'm looking here, and I'm listening over there. I'm not a mindless drone just staring at what's in front of me. So what I really love about traditional archery or primitive archery or archery in general is it forces you to get close to an animal. It forces you to be right up in there. Now, when we are hunting, we are hunting animals who literally rely on their awareness to keep them alive. You know, many of us, unless you live in, you know, cougar country like like we do, most places we're at the top of the food chain. We don't have anything in nature that, in most places, is going to, to, to kill you easily. Whereas animals, 
It's not, it's not that way. So, you know, you take something like a white-tailed deer. Sense of smell is many, many times greater than ours. Their eyesight kind of sucks, but their ears are amazing. And if I'm going to get on the ground and spot and stalk and try to get within 8 to 10 yards of a deer, that requires so many more skills than just being good at shooting a bow. You know, one of the, like a shooting bow, one of the, and whether this is a compound or a, a long bow, one of the things that pisses me off my belief, and somebody says, I'm going to go practice shooting my bow. And they stand in their backyard at 30 yards from the target and spend all day shooting 30 yards to their target. <laughs> Right, That makes you good at shooting at a target in your yard at 30 yards. Does that translate into real-world usage? Yeah, probably some, but vary it up. So my, my issue, and as I said, I'm going to start, start again by saying anything that gets people outdoors, I, I'm fine with. But you know, shooting a deer from 600 yards with a scope, yes, that is technically considered hunting. But there's not a ton of skill that goes in that. You have to be a good marksman, but you see a lot of these hunting TV shows, these guys are sitting in heated boxes with a leather couch and a microwave and a coffee maker just waiting for whatever passes, you know, five, 600 yards away. I like to be close. I like to be personal. I like to be on the playing field with that animal. I want to get as close as I can, uh, not only to test my skill, but also... You know, there's a huge up. There's always been a huge uproar about hunting, and we're torturing animals and killing animals. I completely disagree. Right. So when I am going to take the life of something in order to enrich my own life, in order to sustain me, uh, I a owe it to that animal to know as much as I possibly can about it, to learn to love and respect it. Uh, and B, I want to be guaranteed that when I release my arrow or pull that trigger, that I know 10 times out of 10 that that animal is not going to suffer and it's going to be a quick, clean kill. I feel like as we kind of moved into the modern era and started to invent more and more effective hunting tools, it kind of removes some of the magic for hunting from me. You know, like I, I mentioned, I have a lot of friends that hunt compound bows. And yes, they are more successful than me, meaning they harvest more deer or whatever than me. But as you kind of add more and more modern gear, it, it allows us to move further and further back. My compound bow friends, you know, they don't think twice about shooting 30, 40, 50, 60, some of them even 70 yards. And these are guys that can effectively shoot that far. But to me, that's just further removing myself uh, from the great dance. You know, when you are on the ground spotting and stalking any animal, you know, think about all the skills, right? Stalking and movement, camouflage, awareness. As I said, awareness is the most important skill in life. Just, just taking it all in. Uh, I, I really enjoy these days even just going out and trying to stalk animals without a weapon. So do you I, know? yeah. Um, something my dad was always big on was... Uh, you know, and, and kind of some tracker school lore is, you know, stalking and touching animals. And Oh, no kidding. So yeah. just no weapons. No weapons. Just get trying as close to as you get can. as close as you can touch and it. touch it. Stalking and touching a member of the deer species is one of the most challenging, difficult things that you <laughs> could ever, ever embark on. Have you done it? Yes, I have done it a, a few times. And it's... 
It's a chess game. Do you? What are your thoughts about footwear and stocking? Okay, now we're getting in there. Now we get more. <laughs> so, uh, I think out of all the skills I teach, um, one of the things I'm most excited about are the stalking and the movement skills. Stalking and movement is great on so many levels. So if you think back to, once again, it always goes back to our, to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Yep. Here were a group of people that, you know, they were hunters and they were gatherers. They lived on the move, nomadic, following seasons, following animal movements, whatever it may be. They had to navigate the pathless wilderness. They didn't have nice, big, wide trails like we do nowadays. And they had to be stealthy. They had to be quiet because if they weren't, they wouldn't be good hunters. <laughs> they wouldn't have enough food. They wouldn't pass on their genes. And not only that, as I said, we have always haven't been at the top of the food chain. So if you weren't quiet, not only were you going to miss out on your, on your food, something was going to make you its food. So then as we, you know, flash forward into more modern times, we, we come up with agriculture. We move to a more agrarian lifestyle. All of a sudden, we're not on the move. All of a sudden, we can make paths and trails to get from point A to point B. And our form of movement, this really once beautiful, fluid form of movement that we had where we could be as stealthy as a cat was, was lost to us. Not only that, as people started moving faster, right, they started noticing more and more problems. Maybe their ankles hurt or their knees hurt. So we started inventing more and more oppressive styles of footwear uh, until we move into the modern age where you have things like hunting boots and hiking boots and even a lot of the shoes people wear for running are horribly designed and not not helping us whatsoever right the bottom of our feet have like 240,000 nerve endings in them one of the only other places that has that many is, is our brain right our feet are meant to act as like a earthward antenna that talk to the ground when we step on it and relay information back to our brains about what we're stepping on it seems like you would think that uh, you know more padding would equal more protection and that's just not true there's been uh, we've moved into a revolution in, in footwear in the last 10 years but scientists have started to study this a few years ago and they actually found that the more padding you put on your foot, your brain subconsciously makes you stamp your feet harder to try to contact with the ground. So, this where, is so, yeah. cool. so whereas people thought things like, you know, raised heel, a common thing you see is the raised heel on shoe. That is one of the worst things ever, right? And there's all sorts of theories on why that came up from, you know, it was better for riding horses so that, or that, you know, rich people didn't have to step in other people's crap in the open sewers that ran the street. <laughs> So yeah, so the more padding we put on our foot, we stamp our feet harder to try to contact with the ground. And if you look at the way a modern shoe is made, it's, it's almost made like a coffin for our foot. It doesn't bend and flex and move the way our foot does. It forces our foot into this compressed thing with this thick sole. And, you know, people go out into the woods with that and expect to try to stalk up on a deer and they're going to, they're going to be <laughs> sorely mistaken. So a couple of things, a couple other things modern humans do, you know, we move way too fast. Yes. You know, yes. especially in the woods. I've so, hunted with some people yeah. who move so fast. I, yeah. I can't hunt with other people. There's very few because I am silly slow yeah. and I always want to kick my shoes off. So I was wondering if there was something to that. Yeah. So I feel more comfortable, honestly, Tom, on my hands and knees mm -hmm. crawling that way than with shoes on. And I didn't know if that was just me being like no, OCD. That's your, that's your, 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 your brain screaming to, to return to something simpler. Modern humans, we move 
completely the wrong way than we were designed to. And it's reflected in our, our overall health. Things like bad ankles, bad knees, bad lower backs, shin splints. All of that is attributed to moving in the wrong way. So it's funny. One of my favorite things to do is people watch. So if you watch a modern human that's at a standstill, initiate forward movement, and it's really imperceptible. You have to watch for it. But the first thing we do as modern humans is we keep, for some reason, we keep our center of gravity in our head. And maybe it's because we think we have this massive computer-like brain that's so much brainier than other things' brains. But we we keep our center of gravity up here, and when we do that, uh, our body goes into a panic because you know our our bipedal movement is very unique. And if you talk to scientists who study this, they say it's amazing that we are not constantly falling over or falling over when we go downstairs. And it's the reason why we don't have like robot servants now because they can't very effectively, they're just starting to, to duplicate bipedal movement. So you get a modern human, their center of gravity is in their head for some reason, which makes them off balance. So when we're off balance like that, our body does things to compensate. It widens our straddle. Our straddle is our distance between our feet. And it also causes many folks to pitch one or both feet out. So if you watch certain people walk, they walk like a duck or one foot will be straight and one foot will be canted out. That's not how we're meant to move. We are meant to walk what's called zero pitch, zero straddle, which is if there's an imaginary line in front of you, one foot falls on one side of that line and the other foot falls on the other like so in a, in a straight line, not this or this. No. So the, the pitching of the foot and the widening of the straddle is our subconscious mind trying to protect our body and keep us upright. It, it makes a wider kind of triangle, more balancing, right? So, and that's just standing still. Also, it causes our lower back to, to be in pain. So breathing actually causes us to go off balance. If you stand in your bathroom uh, in bare feet and just look down at your feet and breathe, you can watch your body sway back and forth and you can actually watch your feet bend and move to compensate for those breaths. We're way off balance. And then when we go to initiate forward movement, what do we do? We throw our head forward, and in a blind panic, our subconscious mind, our, our body is trying to catch up with our head. And that's the way modern humans move. They are in this constant, controlled fall forward. And when we're doing that, when we throw our head forward and our body is trying to catch up, we take these giant strides, and we have no choice but to come down with that heavy heel-to-toe footfall where your heel hits and your toe slaps. So you're taking these giant strides, you're coming down on a locked out leg, you're hitting your heel first, slamming your toe down, and you know, our knees are meant to act as shock absorbers. So when most people walk, they walked on almost locked out legs. And, it's, and if you go on YouTube and watch people videos of people running or walking in slow motion, you can watch the shock wave start in the foot and move up the body, and it just vibrates everything and just destroys our bodies. Now, the worst part about this you know, people ask me all the time this a question. It comes in one of two forms. How come when I go in the woods, I don't see any animals? Or how, when I go in the woods, can I see more animals? Right? It's all about movement. So when we're throwing our head forward, we're taking these giant strides, we're committing all of our weight to our steps before we get there. So our subconscious mind says, whoa, okay, you're not moving the right way. We need to protect the body here. So what your brain subconsciously does is it forces your eyes at a 45 degree angle to the ground. So if you watch most people walk, they walk, 
head forward, taking these giant strides, and they're always staring at the ground in front of them. Now, how in the hell are you supposed to go into the woods, you're moving too fast, you're hitting with these heavy heel-to-toe footfalls, which animals, you know, they have this great sense of hearing. You know, think of the Jurassic Park movie with the T-Rex and, like, the vibrating water cup. Like, that's what deer and other animals feel when modern humans move through the woods. So, and, and as I said, another uh, protective mechanism is our brain forces our eyes to constantly be at a 45-degree angle to the ground in front of us to make sure there's nothing we're going to step on that's going to hurt ourselves. So that's why people don't see anything. And I, I challenge any of the listeners, go to your local park that's got a little bit of woods around it. Go to a well-used trail where people walk their dogs or hike. Put on a lime green shirt and sit 15 yards off the trail against a tree facing the trail and nine out of 10 people will walk right by you and not even notice you. That's why it's so easy to hide uh, on modern humans. You know, it's funny. I was reading your article last night where you were talking about that and, uh, and, and dead space, which I also want to talk about. But before we go there, I just want to ask you, I find when I'm hunting, I spend so much time looking at the ground where I'm about to take my next step. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that our, ancestors looked down where they were stepping or were they able to look 45 degrees so, and yeah. be able to know what they were about to step on? So here, here, here's how we're supposed to move. So talked about modern humans and the center of gravity. So let's, let's go back in time and let's imagine, you know, a primitive gather, a hunter gather person about to go out on a hunt. So I started with center of gravity there and I'll start with it here again. So whereas modern humans keep our center of gravity in our head If you want to move properly, you need to move your center of gravity down to an imaginary point that is just kind of in the center of your body, just under your belly button. So imagine like the center of your, you know, your guts. So, and the easiest way to do that is to simply bend our knees a little bit. When we bend, when we drop down and we bend our knees a little bit, all of a sudden our brain doesn't need to throw up a lot of these protective mechanisms. It doesn't need to widen our, 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 our straddle or, or pitch our feet out. Right? Our knees are meant to be shock absorbers. When we initiate, when we move uh, you know, more primitively, we instead of taking these big giant strides where we have no choice but to come down with that heavy heel-to-toe footfall on a locked-out leg, we shorten our stride up a bit. And then instead of hitting heel to toe, we kind of uh, will, and this is just kind of uh, uh, generalities. There's, you know, stalking is a very personal thing. Movement is a very personal thing. We all have different quirks with our bodies. I'm just trying to lay it out as as bare bones as possible here. Um, So instead of hitting with the outstretched straight out leg, it's better to shorten your stride up by about half and place your foot on the ground, your next step, hit with the outside edge, kind of roll your foot flat on the ground. And when we combine this technique with either bare feet or a thinner soled shoe that we can feel things, another key with this walk is we don't commit our weight till we know what we're stepping on. So I put my foot out, my foot make contact with the ground. My foot and my brain have this conversation. Is this what you want to be stepping on? Yeah, this feels good. You sure you want to be stepping on this? Okay, yeah, we're good. All right, let's start transitioning our weight and moving into the next step. So we shorten our stride. We feel what we're stepping on before we commit our weight. And this isn't just for injury, but talk about the the hunting application. A twig, uh, a patch of leaves, something that's going to make a lot of noise. 
right? And these are things you'll develop over time uh, as you, you kind of delve into the world of stalking. So I am feeling what I'm stepping on. My feet are feeling what I'm stepping on before I commit my weight to the step. Therefore, if my feet are talking to the ground for me, all of a sudden, my eyes don't have to be at a 45-degree angle to the ground. They don't have to be straight down. So here, I'll just give a, a general, so what I do. So let's say I, I'm standing at the edge of the woods getting ready to go in and hunt or stalk or whatever. So what I will do is I will look at the, 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 the general area in front of me out to about 15 or 20 yards, and I'll very quickly assess, A, is there anything in this area that's going to hurt me? B, is there anything in this area I don't want to step on because it's going to make a noise? Right. Once I do that and decide, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a patch of dried leaves right there. There's a, a big stick right there. Right? And, I, and I pick my general path. I'll analyze that section of trail in front of me, and then I'll start my movement. I'll shorten my stride. I slow myself way down. So if you want to move kind of at the speed of nature moves, you want to move half the speed you would in public, and for some of you quicker folks out there, a quarter of the speed you would normally move. Right, nature moves slow. Nature moves slow. Our crazy, fast-paced modern life does not equate to nature time. So when I'm moving, I'm talking to the ground with my feet. That allows my eyes to be up and looking around. And then once I get to that like 15-yard distance, I will then look at the next 15 or 20 yards in front of me. Make that same assessment: Is there anything that's going to hurt me or 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 mess up my stock. When you go and sit in nature, you can watch how animals and humans interact. So I can't tell you how many mornings, uh, you know, one, one of my father's teachers, stalking wolves, like uh, life lessons, was called the sit spot. And that is every morning at sunrise and every evening at sunset, you go out and you sit in nature for an hour, both for naturalist purposes, but also introspection, uh, you know, debriefing the day in your head, planning the next day. Uh, when you spend a lot of time sitting in nature, that's when nature really opens up to you. You know, us modern humans, let's face it, we are aliens when we go into the woods. You know, most of the time we create a disturbance, either from our movement or the way we smell or the way we dress. But when we sit and sit for a little while, you know, more than five minutes and let nature kind of go back to its baseline, you can watch how animals act and react not only to each other, but humans. So I've had this demonstrated to me millions of times. You're sitting in the woods. It's a beautiful morning. There's birds everywhere. There's you know, deer, foxes, raccoons, whatever. Everything is just beautiful. And then all of a sudden, usually starts with the birds. You hear an alarm call. Then you watch the deer. And the deer will perk up and start looking around. And then the fox, the fox will do an alarm call. And then the animals will either melt back into the forest or they'll freeze in place. And sure enough, you can guarantee anywhere from five to ten minutes later, there's a human coming up the road or coming up the trail. It's called concentric rings. Nature has a way of alerting itself to danger. So when you go out in the woods and you set off an alarm call of a squirrel or a jay, right, that's letting everything in that area know that there is something to be alarmed about. And that concentric ring, just like when you drop a rock in a pond and it ripples out, that ripples out. And if you're really skilled, 
you can you can read those concentric rings uh, a, a good distance out when there's there's some sort of disturbance. How does that relate to waiting? Is it the same thing? You know, and it's funny actually. You mentioned waiting because I I was on the Deschutes uh, two weekends ago, and I was teaching a class out there and. You know, we were at a campground, and so I had a little bit of time here and there to fish, and the river was a little up, and so I put my waders on. I'm wading out there. I'm about waist deep. Swing the fly, take your steps, and I just stepped off into, to like, right up to the edge of the waders. And the reason why that happened, and it, it, when I stumble, it's usually when I'm fishing, and it's because I'm focus-locked on the fishing and not my, not my feet. But yes, it, it, it totally applies to waiting, you know, and this is something else. You know, I watch a lot of, lot of fishermen and fish feel sound and vibration through the water. And I watch these, these, these guys, you know, I'll even leave a run when a guy comes just, I can hear him a hundred yards Tromping. off, just smashing through brush and stomping and then hitting the cobbles and just grinding them. And I'm like, oh. I'm just going to go because, you know, but yeah, totally applies, uh, applies to waiting, feeling what we're stepping on before we commit our weight. When I'm waiting most of the time, when I'm not, you know, focused locked so much on, uh, on fishing is, you know, when I, when I go to shuffle and step down, I put my foot down first. I still keep my, my weight on my upstream leg and I'll, I'll put my foot down and kind of experiment with putting weight and taking it off to make sure it's a good uh, you know, sturdy foothold for me. Um, but yeah, totally applicable to waiting, not only waiting, but just, you know, in general approaching the water, do not approach the water, whether it's a river, a Creek or a lake, like you're walking into Starbucks, <laughs> you will, you know, you, you spook the fish, you know, fish. I, I listened to, to one of your podcasts where it was talking about sound and how, how sound affects the fish. And even though we think of rivers as loud, so there's a thing in nature called baseline, right? And baseline is the overall, at any given time, it's the overall level of sound and movement that's just naturally occurring in the environment. Now, what alerts animals most of the time is when some noise or sound or activity violates that baseline, causes a spike in that baseline. So, yes, rivers are loud places. Flowing water is loud, but... The fish and the animals around it are used to that. So when you combine that with the sound of grinding rocks or people stepping, even though that noise you might be making isn't louder, might be the same same you know, volume as the river itself, but it's a different sound. You know, real quick story: when I lived in Illinois, my uh, friend's family has a property there. It's uh, 1,600 acres. It's in the Illinois River Valley. It's one of the few places in that area that is not like a Monsanto agricultural desert. So one drawback about the property is there's freight train tracks that pretty much bisect it. And one day I was down in the marsh and I was just, uh, I was clearing some invasive, I forget what it was, Phragmites. I was doing some invasive species removal. So I finished my Phragmites removal, which is a brutal task if anybody's ever done it. Um, and I decided to sit. I like to sit in nature a lot for the reasons I talked about before. So I'm sitting there and I'm sitting at the edge of this marsh and there's, you know, carp in the water and there's, you know, great blue herons and wood ducks and muskrats and, and red winged blackbirds just going about their business, being animals. And all of a sudden off in the distance, I hear the freight train coming. And this is like 
100, 150 car, four locomotive train moving at 80 to 100 miles an hour. That train comes ripping through, train track runs right along the edge of the marsh. Animals don't bat an eye. Mm -hmm. So then about 10 minutes later, my buddy comes back from town, parks the truck, closes the door. The sound of the door closing sent everything, including the carp, because the carp reacted to the birds suddenly taking <gasps> off. Right. Right? Sent everything scattering. This, this sound of a car door that was 100 yards away from where I was sitting alerted all those animals and scattered them all. Yet a freight train moving at 100 miles an hour, didn't, they didn't bat an eye. So that freight train is in their baseline. The car door isn't, you know, and it's a... Uh, that's a, a really important one to pay attention to. You know, when I, especially when I go out hunting, I will spend sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes before I even walk into the woods just listening to the baseline, listening to what's going on. That's excellent and, advice. And as long as, my, as I match my movements to the ebb and flow of what's going on around me, and I'm careful to not make too much noise, I'll be good. You know, there's this, this, this misconception out there that when I use the word stalking, that like dead silence, right? There are very few things in nature that are silent when they move, even mountain lions, right? Everything makes noise on, on a lot of substrates we walk on. So it's not about how much noise, it's about the type of noise. And if we are, if we are matching it to what's, to what's going on around us. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 